All right. Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word with you. Uh, if you are new or visiting, like Ryan said earlier, I'd love to get to know you. So glad that you are here. And if there's anything that we can do to serve you, help you get connected to the community here at River City, uh, we would genuinely love to do that. Come find me or Aaron or somebody else that's been up front. We'd, we'd love to get to know you, help you get plugged into the community here or city. So uh, excited to continue walking our way through the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. If you've been with us for the last number of months, you'll know that we are just work, working our way verse by verse, chunk by chunk through the, this letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the ancient or the, the, the church in the city of Corinth. And, and so if you've been gone or if you're just joining us for the first time, before we dive in this morning, let me catch you back up a little bit on where we're at and so that we can have some context for our time together. Like I said, uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a, a church that he actually helped to plant. He actually began about five years prior to the writing of this letter. So the church he's writing to is about five years old, just like River City is just about five years old. In good news, it seems like things are going a little bit better here at River City than they were in Corinth. Um, you see, what was happening in Corinth is, is the, the city itself was this, was this incredibly important port city. It was a city located strategically in this spot that basically made it kind of the de facto trade route between Rome and the rest of the Mediterranean. And so it was this incredibly wealthy and influential and important city in the ancient world. But also, at the time of the writing of this letter, it was still a very new city because what had happened is about 200 years prior, Rome had conquered and destroyed the city, let it sit desolate for a good hundred or so years, and then decided it was about time to resettle the city with people loyal to Rome. And so they kind of resettled this important city with uh, mostly freed slaves and former army veterans. And so what you had in this incredibly important and strategic location was a city full of people who were making a new name for themselves, who were making a new identity for themselves, who were starting uh, new families and new futures in this place. And so there was this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset that pervaded the Corinthian society as a whole. Uh, specifically, what we see is that is that this context is really important to understanding the letter as a whole because, because this deeply aspirational and upwardly mobile mindset was central to everything that happened in the city of Corinth. Everything revolved around climbing the social and economic ladders of the day or maintaining your place at the top. It is the thing that in Corinth everyone cared the most about. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, the, the ideal of the Corinthian culture was the reckless development of the individual. And so everything in Corinth revolved around the self. And tragically, what we see is that the church in Corinth was no exception to that. As we've studied the letter, we've seen over and over and over again how their highest priority was not God's glory and God's kingdom, but was very clearly and very evidently their own glory and the advancing of their own social status in the world that they lived in. We saw this self-centered mindset, this idolatry of the self was at the heart of pretty much all of the problems that the Apostle Paul has to address in this radically dysfunctional church. And we do not have time to recap the past 11 and a half chapters because uh, we would literally be here the whole time just talking about all the problems that were happening in this church. 
But what's important to understand about our passage this week is that it's a part of a bigger section in chapters 11 through 14 where Paul is confronting specifically the the self-centered ways in which the Corinthians are acting in the specific context of their worship gatherings. In a bunch of other chapters, he's talked about a bunch of different other ways that this was affecting their, their community or the way they were living. But in these chapters, he's specifically talking about the problems that these, this self-centeredness is, is manifesting itself in, in the context of their worship gatherings in specific. And we saw last week, uh, we saw last week in the first part of chapter 11 how this self-centeredness was leading the Corinthians, especially the women in the, in the body, to participate in their gatherings in ways that were minimizing and disregarding and actually undermining God's good design and calling for men and women to bear his image in equal and yet distinct, unique ways. And so as a result, what was happening is, is that they were drawing attention away from God and onto themselves, which... Uh, should be no surprise, is the very opposite of the purpose of gathering for worship. Right? The point of gathering for worship is to honor God and glorify him and set our hearts and attention on him. And yet what was happening is that the way that they were acting was drawing attention away from God and onto themselves. This week, as we study the second half of chapter 11, what we're going to see is how, how the way the Corinthians were celebrating communion specifically in their gatherings was similarly seeking to undermine the very purpose and the point of communion in the first place. You see, instead of communion serving as this unifying reminder about the good news of Jesus' death on their behalf and all that it accomplished for them, the, the way that the Corinthians were celebrating communion was actually dividing their church. It was actually causing increased divisions amongst them. And it was just reinforcing the divisions in their culture that were based on their own personal accomplishments rather than on Jesus. And so in response to their perversion of the Lord's Supper, of communion, Paul has some incredibly harsh words for them. Incredibly harsh words this morning. But they're, but they're not meant to cause the Corinthians to just have this incredible self-doubt and self-hatred. Instead, they're meant to cause the Corinthians to examine their own hearts so that their celebration of communion, instead of being a cause for God's just judgment and discipline against them, would instead be a unifying and transforming reminder of the gospel. They would be able to be the thing it was always meant to be. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into our passage this morning. Jesus, thank you for our time together, and thank you that you love us, thanks that you have kept your word for us so that we might know you and, and might know what it looks like to honor you as we gather together in response to your word. And so, God, we want to come humbly this morning, and again, just as we always do, we want to say, Jesus, we need you, and we need your spirit to empower our gathering together. God, I need you to empower me to teach your word, not just with, uh, with right information, but with power. And I cannot do that without you. And we need you to enable us to hear and to respond rightly to your word and to, have, and to have spirits that are sensitive to your correcting and encouraging guidance in our lives. And so, Jesus, we need you, and we are so dependent on you as we gather. And so we ask, Jesus, as we study your word, would you help us to not just hear or understand your word rightly, but to willingly, gladly put ourselves under the good authority of your word and to live lives in response to it. God, thanks that you want to do that so that we might have joy as we live for you and full lives unto you. 
But ultimately, God, we know that you want that so that you might be glorified. And so we ask that that would indeed be the case as we gather. We need you for everything. We're dependent on you, King Jesus. Amen. All right, well, this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, second half of the chapter, verses 17 through 34. It reads this way. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it, for no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Uh, by the way, I think Paul's being bitingly sarcastic with that, mo- with that point right there. And so then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Do you not have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you then? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received with the Lord, uh, from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. And this is what many of you are, this is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep literally saying that died. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then my brothers and sisters when you gather to eat you should eat all together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further instructions. All right, it's the word of the Lord here. I think uh, to understand rightly really what's going on, we have a little bit of context for that situation. And and see, in understanding the the problem that Paul's addressing, you have to understand a little bit of the context of worship gatherings in the early church. You see, in those days, in the days of the early church, churches weren't meeting in buildings like we have here or or hotels like we used to meet at when we started this church. Uh, They were actually meeting in people's homes, usually the homes of wealthier Christians, which would have much more space for gatherings and things of that nature. And because there were no weekends or no days off in that culture, the church would would gather in the evenings, usually Sunday evenings, for for worship together. And as a part of their worship service, they would celebrate communion or the Lord's Supper as well, the same thing together, just like we do when we gather here together on Sundays. But unlike our communion celebration, theirs was like an actual full-on meal. And some of you are like, why don't we do that? That sounds great. I'm already hungry. I'm like, I miss breakfast, right? 
And what would happen is that these meals would be kind of like a family-style kind of thing. Everyone would bring something to share, a potluck, kind of family-style meals. And at the end of the meal, they would specifically break the bread and take the cup, just as Jesus had done with his disciples at the Last Supper on the night before that he went to the cross. And so this shared meal was intended to be a reminder of how Jesus' death not only saved them from their sin, but also how it made them a part of a new family together made them part of God's family. But what was apparently happening in the Corinthian church was that the the wealthier Corinthians, because of the nature of their jobs and their status, got off work a lot earlier than the rest of the people in the church, people who were in the working class or servants or slaves or others in the church. And so they were in turn coming to their worship gatherings much earlier than everybody else. And they were bringing with them, obviously, the best food, the most food, the best wine, all of that kind of stuff, because they had much more means than others. But instead of waiting for the whole church to arrive and sharing what they had brought with everyone as a part of this communion meal, as part of the Lord's Supper they would celebrate together, they were starting the meal early and they were gorging themselves on all the best food and the wine to the point that when the rest of the church would arrive, they would find their brothers and sisters not only having left them nothing to eat, but being drunk themselves. Now, the passage doesn't specifically tell us that these wealthier Corinthians were doing this on purpose to separate themselves from the rest of the church, but based on Paul's biting tone and posture throughout the passage, as well as just understanding Corinthian cultural norms, it's pretty safe to assume it wasn't an accident. You see, remember in Corinth, the thing everyone cared most about was climbing the social and economic ladders of the day. And and who you ate with, who you shared meals with, was absolutely a part of that. One commentator puts it this way. He says, in the city of Corinth, a meal was an occasion for gaining or showing social status. It was, in many regards, a microcosm of the aspirations and the aims of the culture as a whole. See, in Corinth, everything's about climbing the ladder. And so you wanted to eat with the people who are higher up the ladder. You wanted to rub shoulders with people who are more influential and more prestigious. And you wanted to be real intentional about avoiding associating with people who are much farther down the ladder than you because that wasn't going to help your social status in the Corinthian world. And what we see is that this is happening. This, is, this Corinthian mindset is playing out in their worship gatherings. And what we see throughout the passage is that Paul's confronting how this utterly self-centered Corinthian approach to communion is completely at odds with the very purpose and point of communion in the first place. He says, so much so, this is such at odds with God's good design for what this was all about. He says, they're not even celebrating communion anymore in verse 20. He says, it's no longer the Lord's Supper. They had made it their own meal. They had made it their own thing. Stephen, on one commentary, he he sums it up this way. He says so helpfully. He says, they had profaned it to the point that it was unrecognizable. They had twisted the communion meal from being about Christ's accomplishments to being a sacrament of their own accomplishments. It no longer reflected their need. It reflected their prominence and their importance. See, in other words, what had happened in this Corinthian church is that communion had had become, instead of being about honoring and elevating Jesus and all that he had done, it became yet another means that the Corinthians used to honor and elevate themselves. How tragic. How problematic. 
And that's a problem because as Paul lays out in verses 23 through 27, he says that celebrating communion is supposed to be all about remembering Jesus. Not about remembering yourselves and your own accomplishments, it's about remembering Jesus, specifically about remembering his sacrificial and his substitutionary death on their behalf and doing that in a way that proclaims both to themselves and to one another their ongoing need for him and dependence on him. And see, in correcting their self-centered celebration of communion, Paul takes them back to the night that Jesus himself instituted the the practice of communion in the first place, the night that he was betrayed. This would have been the the night of the Passover. You see, in Jewish culture, the Passover was was a meal that Jesus and his disciples were eating that night. It was a meal that the Jewish people had celebrated annually for over 1,400 years. It was a remembrance of the meal that they ate the night that God delivered them, that rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt. You see, in Exodus, we read about how God had sent Moses to the Egyptian king, to Pharaoh, and repeatedly told Moses to tell the Pharaoh to let his people go. But Pharaoh just straight up refuses, and in the face of increasingly devastating plagues that God had brought the Egyptian people and land, until finally in, in, uh, in Exodus 11, God warns Pharaoh that at midnight that he would go throughout all of Egypt and kill the firstborn sons of, of people and animals if they did not set the Israelites free. And yet Pharaoh still refuses. And in preparation for that night, God had instructed Moses to have the Israelites hold each household slaughter an unblemished lamb and eat the meat and, and put some of the blood on the door frames of their houses. And as a demonstration of their faith in God and, a, and their dependence on his grace, and that night, just as he promised, God went throughout all of Egypt and he killed every firstborn son of, of animals and of people, but he passed over the houses with blood on the door. From then on, per God's instruction, every year the Israelites celebrated the deliverance that God had acquired for them that night with this festival of Passover and unleavened bread and that began with the Passover meal on the first night in remembrance of the meal that the Israelites ate that night in preparation for God's redeeming, saving work for them. And so it's against the backdrop of this historic meal that we see Jesus himself instituting really a brand new meal. And so when Jesus says to his disciples in the Last Supper in that meal, he says, this is my body given for you. This, is the, this, is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He wasn't just expanding their understanding of this meal that they were, had been eating for centuries as a people. He was redefining it altogether. You see, he's saying that this, this bread that you used to break and eat as a reminder of the bread that your ancestors ate the night that God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, now you eat it as a reminder of my body and my blood, which is broken and shed for you. And this cup you drink as a reminder of the promises God kept to redeem you and rescue you. From now on, you drink it as a reminder of how God kept his promise to save you from your ultimate slavery, not just to Egypt, but to sin itself. You see, what Jesus is doing there, when he's talking about how the, the cup is this reminder of this, the covenant of my blood. He's, what he's doing there is he's, rem, he's, he's reminding, he's referencing a promise that God made to his people in Jeremiah 31 that one day he was going to establish a new covenant with his people, a, a covenant that would deal with ultimately with the problem of sin once and for all. 
So what Jesus is saying, he's saying is that my death is the means by which this new covenant is possible. My body broken for you, my blood shed on your behalf is the thing that secures your right standing with me. And in communion, Jesus appropriates the images of a covenant from the Old Testament, the divided flesh and spilled blood. And he doesn't just say, look at these things. He says, take them, eat them. Because righteousness and right standing with God is a matter of internal cleansing, not just external cleansing. And so nothing miraculous happens inside of you when you take communion, the bread or the cup. Instead, what we're remembering is, is the very nature of this new covenant. Instead, it comes by Jesus' blood, his body given, shed for us, and it transforms us from the inside and that word remembrance in verse 24 and 25, it's really important. It comes up again. Because it tells us about the essential nature of communion in the first place. You see, lots of different churches and denominations approach communion with a different, from different perspectives and in different, different kind of ways. Some approach it in a, in a way that says when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, that he was saying that in literal terms. And, and that the idea is that, that the elements literally become the body and the blood of Jesus and that receiving them, that taking them is, is somehow actually is a, is a part of actually receiving grace from God. And this is problematic for a couple of reasons. One, because it doesn't really seem to make sense of what Jesus himself describes. Like, he's, he's literally giving the bread and the cup, and he's there. So it'd be difficult to think that that was literally him, unless he, like, cut his finger off and put it in there. At that point, everybody would be like, I'm out, right? No. But also because we see all over God's, all over the Bible that God's grace comes to us not through the physical act of taking communion, but through the spiritual act of placing our faith in Jesus. And so some churches treat it like this in a literal kind of way. Other churches approach communion in the view that while Jesus' body and blood are not actually physically present, that Jesus is in some way mysteriously spiritually present in the, in the act of communion as we take it. And again, I would say uh, that just does not seem to be the best uh, interpretation of the passage that we have or the rest of what we see in God's word. And the reality is, is that that view really started in a lot of ways when people were breaking off from the literal view of communion. And uh, so there's some kind of some baggage that comes with some of that. But the view that we would hold here at River City um, is that communion uh, is technically it would be referred to as the memorial view of communion. Where the ritual, of the, uh, the practice of taking and celebrating Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross is about us choosing to remember who he is and all that he has done for us. There isn't something extra spiritual that happens as we take communion. We don't get closer to God. We don't receive more grace from him. It does not change our status or our standing or our relationship to him. Instead, communion is about us regularly and intentionally choosing to set our hearts and our minds on our need for Jesus and all the ways that he has met our need. But when Jesus says that we should do this in remembrance of him, and when Paul gives us instruction about it being in remembrance of him, he's not just saying that we should think about him. See, I think we tend to kind of think about the idea of remembering something as about being recalling facts to mind, right? Like the opposite of remembering is forgetting, right? And that's definitely a part of it. But when you look at the etymology of the word, what you see is that the opposite of remembering isn't just forgetting, it's dismembering. And that sounds kind of weird, right? Because when you think about dismembering, you kind of like 
brings up some weird pictures into your mind, potentially, right? Because dismembering something is about breaking something apart. It's about separating it, right? But remembering, in contrast, isn't just about recalling something to mind. It's about making something a part of yourself once again. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, to remember means not just to recall, It means to graft in, to sew in. It means to fuse, to take something that is actually not a part of your being and make it a part of your being again. See, and so the the invitation in communion isn't that just what we would think about Jesus and the gospel. That it wouldn't just be like this head-level thing where we remind ourselves about what Jesus did for us, but that we would remember it, that we would reincorporate it into our hearts and into our lives, that the truth about who he is and all that he has done for us, that it would saturate our beings once again, and so that it would shape our actions and our attitudes and our mindsets and everything about who we are. But this remembering is not just about us doing this on an individual level. It's about doing it as a community together. You see, reminding we're not just reminding ourselves, we're reminding one another about our common need for Jesus when we take communion together and our ongoing dependence on his body and his blood, not just to save us, but to sustain us and to empower us to be his people each and every day. And so communion is meant as this, in one of the ways, is meant as this, This reminder of the gospel is this ultimate equalizer. That whoever you are, whatever background you come from, no matter your race or ethnicity or gender or no matter what culture you come from, no matter if you're rich or poor, if you're successful or unsuccessful, or if you're able or disabled or whatever it is, it's a great equalizer that reminds all of us together about our deepest need, which is for Jesus to come and rescue us from our sin. One commentator writes it this way. He says, we tend to marginalize others who are different than we are. We tend to alienate people as other because they are not like us. But the beauty of the Lord's Supper is that there is a common bread and a common cup. It is a visual representation of the fact that the common divisions and disunities of our world are overcome in Jesus. And so communion is not just about us personally remembering Jesus' death. It's about us doing that together and remembering that he has died not just for you, but for each and every one of us. And it is the great leveling playing field because it's a reminder that what we all need most is him. The irony of the situation in Corinth was that the the very thing that was meant to bring their community together and and had become yet another way that this church was increasingly divided, the thing that was supposed to eradicate their divisions amongst one another was actually intensifying the divisions they had amongst another because instead of reflecting on the self-giving love of Jesus, they were just using it as a way to reflect on themselves. They were using it as communion as a way of celebrating and elevating their own social standing. It was was about remembering themselves, not remembering Jesus. And what Paul has to say in response to all this in verse 27 through 30 should be startling to us. Should be startling. 
You see, the self-focused and self-sufficient ways in which this body of believers were celebrating communion was not just sinning against their brothers and sisters in Christ who they were excluding and humiliating. Paul says it was sinning against Jesus himself. And even more poignantly, in verse 30, you say it was the cause of God's just judgment and discipline. Verse 30, he tells them that the way that they're celebrating communion, the selfish and self-centered and self-sufficient ways that they're celebrating communion is actually the reason that some of them are weak and sick and even dead. Let that sink in for a moment. It's a big deal. Their sin was so egregious, so unrepentant, so prideful that God was severely disciplining them. Now note I say here intentionally, I use the words judging and disciplining, not punishing. You see, this passage as well as Romans 8 and many others are clear that God does not punish us for our sin if we've trusted in Jesus. The part of putting our faith in Jesus is, is receiving the, putting our faith in the, the fact that he absorbed all of God's just punishment for our sin, that God is, no longer has any condemnation, he no longer has any wrath for us, that Jesus absorbed all of it. But the reality is that God still does justly judge sin and discipline us when we sin. Just like I discipline my own kids when they sin. And that doesn't mean they're not part of my family anymore. And it doesn't mean I don't love them. In fact, it means even more that I do. You see, it's verse 32. God says, Paul says that he does it because he doesn't want them to be condemned in the end. See, God's discipline is like the loving correction of a father who does not want his children to continue in sin. And similar to what we saw in chapter 5 when God instructed the church to discipline the man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, right? the whole reason why he gave them that instruction was because in the end, right, he said that he wanted his good, that he would repent and would return to faith. The same is true. God disciplines us in our sin because he longs for our good and he loves us. Now, the point of this passage is, is not to say that every sickness or illness is God's just judgment or discipline for your sin, but it's to say that it might be. And if it is, it is not because God's angry with you, but because he loves you and wants your eternal good. And he is so deeply committed to your eternal good that he is willing to bring about discipline so that you might turn from sin and turn back towards him. It's out of love that he does that. But again, this, is, this situation is just an incredibly egregious situation marked by a radical level of selfishness and unrepentance. Most of the time, I think, God just all God really needs to do most of the time is, is convict our hearts. Many of you have had that happen often. You sin and you, you are, you're acting and living and believing and thinking in a way that's counter to God's word and you sense him correcting that in your heart. And God doesn't need to go to the levels of bringing sickness into your life to shake you awake to his work in your life. But sometimes he might. And if he does, he does it because he loves us too much to let us continue on in sin. Now, while I do want the gravity of Paul's words to sink in here because he clearly wants them to sink in, 
I don't want them to cripple you in fear and keep you from ever taking communion again, right? For fear that you're doing it in an unworthy manner or something like that. No, what we see is that the Corinthians themselves are not unworthy to take communion, but they are taking it in an unworthy manner, namely in a, a prideful and self-sufficient one. And what Paul wants them to do is to examine themselves not for perfection, but for a recognition of their need for Jesus' perfection on their behalf. I remember uh, in seminary, we were discussing uh, communion together one week. And there was a fellow student who shared a story. And he shared about how in college he was having one especially difficult semester. And, and there was a Saturday night one time when he just got incredibly drunk and proceeded to say and do some things that he was uh, really desperately wished that he would not have done. And he talked about how as he went to church the next morning, he was full of shame. And when it came time to, to take communion, he, he didn't want to. He didn't feel like he could partake. He didn't feel worthy enough. And he said in that moment, he felt like God was speaking to him. And he was saying, go to the table. I died so that you could join me at the table. He said in that moment he realized that Jesus had died for his sins the previous night and that it wasn't his righteous acts that made him worthy and it wasn't his sin that made him unworthy to partake in the Lord's Supper. Instead, it was Jesus who had died so that he could commune with him and his fellow believers. See, and that's what we're doing when we're celebrating communion every week. We're remembering that we are not worthy we're not worthy of being Jesus' forgiven and loved and adopted children. That there is nothing that we have done that makes us worthy, but that Jesus and faith in him is the one thing that has made us worthy to be a part of his family and worthy to remember him. And so for all of us, the invitation is that we would examine our hearts. That we would examine our hearts not to see if we are without sin because none of us would pass but to see if we have a recognition of our need for a Savior. You see, what is so condemning of the Corinthians is that they are taking communion in a prideful and self-sufficient way. And it's not about remembering their need for Jesus, but about them remembering how great they think they are. I see, in the invitation for us as we take communion this morning and every week is that we might see it as a reminder yet again of how much we need Jesus. And if as we celebrate, that's what's on your heart. If, as we, if you go to the table, what you are remembering is not how great you are and how great Jesus did at picking you to be in his kingdom, but about how unworthy you are to be his child. And yet, how graciously and lavishly he has loved you and made you part of his family. If you come to the table with a reminder of your need for him. And that's what enables you to be worthy to celebrate communion. See, as a Christian, the only time that you should refrain from taking communion is when you find in your heart uh, an apathy within yourself towards God. Uh, a rejection of him. Or, a, or an apathy towards others who God has made a part of his community or a, or a hatred of others, just as what was happening in this Corinthian church. And that they were rejecting their need for Jesus and they were rejecting that others were, need, were a part of their community and they were coming in a self-sufficient and prideful manner. 
And so instead, the invitation is that we might come together with hearts that have been humbled by our need for Jesus, and yet hearts that are full of gratitude and joy. Because in communion, we're remembering not just that we need Jesus, but that he came to meet our need. And so if you are here this morning, and if you are a Christian, I want to encourage you, examine your heart, confess your sin to the Lord, and then go and take communion. Remember, use it as a way to remember, to remember, to reincorporate the truth about who he is and all that he has done back into your very being. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you haven't trusted Jesus to forgive you and to make you right with God, then I would encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You are absolutely welcome here in this church and welcome in this community, but God is not interested in you just going through some rituals or thinking that doing the rituals is what makes you right with him because that is the essence of self-sufficiency. Instead, he wants you to come humbly to admit your need for him and to receive his grace. And so if you do that, then come to communion in faith and hope in him. Communion doesn't make you right with God. It does not save you. The Bible is clear. It's faith alone in Jesus that does that. And so if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. There are two tables in the back of the room. There's one on the left and on the right, and there's bread that you can dip in the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and blood that was broken for you, shed for you, that you might, as in your need for him, receive all that your need, have all of your need met in him. And as you do, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to help you think about Jesus, but not just here. Ask him to help you remember him here. To do it on a heart level and to reinfuse and reincorporate the truths about who he is and all that he has done for you at the very core of who you are. And ask him as well to do the same for others. And so that as a church, we might proclaim the equalizing good news of Jesus' sacrificial and substitutionary death that we might proclaim with our gatherings as we celebrate his death for us, that we might proclaim to ourselves and to one another that we are waiting for his return. That we might proclaim him as the one we needed and the one we still need and the one we will always need until he returns. Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. And we are grateful for you. We are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful that you have known us and sent your son. And we, God, we come this morning to celebrate communion as we do each week. And I pray by your grace, Jesus, that you might help us to really remember it this morning. To do it in remembrance of you. And God, by your grace, would you convict us of sin, especially a self-sufficient and prideful heart's and would you empower us by your grace, Jesus, to reject our sin, to turn from it, and to embrace your death and our need for your death on our behalf so that we might be empowered to die to ourselves each and every day so that we might no longer live for ourselves, Jesus, but in remembering you, we would live for you each day. We need you, Jesus. We cannot do it on our own. Amen.